Well, kia ora everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I recently got the chance to sit down with Saif Wangsuno Parat, and we had a great conversation with a real focus on impact, what it means, and how we measure it. I think you're going to enjoy this one. If you do, then don't forget there's lots more episodes in the back catalog. And in fact, Safe references two guests, Michelle Sharp and Tim Jones, who are episodes number one and two. So you might want to check those out back from six years ago. If you enjoy the content on Seeds, then why not post about it and tell another person? Because it just might help them as well. And that's the way that the show will keep on growing. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Safe. Well, it's a real pleasure to welcome Safe Wang Suno Parat to the show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Stephen. So glad to be here. I've been listening to your show for many, many years since episode one and episode two, I think, with really? Michelle Sharp and Tim Jones. So such a privilege to be here today. Wow, that's awesome. Well, a shout out back to them. Yeah, that was 2017. So was yeah, time goes by. Time went by <laughs> too quickly. Yeah, too this, quickly. this will be probably about episode 380. So that just shows uh, from those early days. It <laughs> up just till shows today. all the seed that you planted since 2017 until now, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah I like to think to that there's a lot of conversations out there that people have listened to, and it maybe you know shapes some of their journey as well. So definitely, yeah, yeah. it definitely so, shapes some of mine too. So honestly, you have been a contribution to some of who I am today. So I really oh, thank you. For thank that. you. That's what a great way to start. Well, what we would love to do is find out a bit about your background, um, your journey, what's led you here. But I know that you've been doing some really interesting things in the last few years. You've gone to the UK and you yeah. were really involved in this area of impact and mm. measuring impact. And what is it? What do we mean oh, by these that? Black boxes. That what we're is? Talking about. Yeah. What is it? So um, we're going to get into all of that. Yeah. But before we do that, I always like to jump in the time machine, go back, and can you tell us a little bit about where you're from and what was yes. life like when you were say five years old? Great. Um, so I was born in Bangkok, in Thailand. I think five years old to me, obviously life was a lot more simple back then, but I think it gave me, it reminds me of three senses. So the sense of home, the sense of family, and the sense of gratitude, I think. And, and what I mean by that is the sense of home is me and my sister. So I'm the eldest of the two, so just me and my sister in the family. Mm-hmm. We, we go back home to visit our parents every year, and what it means is that it's the family home that I was born in. It's the family home I grew up in. I still sleep in the same bed. Wow. And I was, when I was, I was five, I, you know, when I turn around, you still see those glowing star stickers oh, really? on the door. <laughs> Hilarious. But um, it gave me that sense of home that every time I go back, I don't think about a lot. It was just a place where I feel safe mm. and secure, right? And it links to the point number two. And number three is the, the sense of family and gratitude because I feel like I don't appreciate enough of how much deci- how many decisions my parents made to give me and my sister so much time to, to, to build that foundation for us. So I think that's what it really means for me at five years old was that I didn't realize how important it was to have such a warming family and, and for them to give up a lot of their dreams to give us time and love that we have. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget, well, for all of us, we're shaped by who we are, by the parents or the caregivers or whoever came before. And it sounds like you had quite a stable environment then if the, <laughs> if the bed is still there. And without realizing that at, at that time of how important it is now, just because it means that you almost uh, are filled with love all the time. You're filled with compassion. And it means that you're able to share some of those with mm-hmm. others as opposed to having to work on yourself to fill in the gaps where you might not have as many people are experiencing yeah, as I'm, well. 
That's interesting. I've been to Bangkok before. So um, can you just describe for some of the listeners, like, what sort of a city is it? And um, I, I remember, like, all the motorcycles, and it's very kind of noisy place. It's a yeah. hot place. But, yeah. yeah, what type of an environment was your house, and was it, yeah, what was it like? Yeah, so we, we were fortunate that our family home is, I guess we call it the outside just outside of the Bangkok city centre, so therefore that means that we're not in the middle of all these motorbike noises and all the um, pollution, transportation and all that, but you're right, Bangkok is another beast of a city, imagining Sydney, imagining London kind of thing, so it's definitely a very dense population. Mm. Um, we were just lucky to be staying away from it for most of the time, so I grew up in probably a slightly smaller suburbs outside of Bangkok, which... However, though, um, my dad, he, he is a pharmacist, so therefore he, he used to own a couple of pharmacies within the city. So we as a family would tend to, when he goes to work, we just tag along. And it means that we kind of grew up as, I call myself, the department store's baby. So we just spent most of the time in the mall and, and all those things as we were young, just because it's where I see. the dad is working, mum doesn't work, but that's where dad would be most of the time. Hence, we just tend to grow up in those kind of environment, which somewhat kind of affected me a little bit in terms of I'm more of an indoor person maybe, and I just enjoy being in a, a nice, cozy place as opposed to, I guess, sometimes going out and explore yeah. too many things. Yeah, and I guess the malls there, would they have been air-conditioned? Everything like, is air-conditioned yeah, purely it's, because it's 35 degrees most of the time, and therefore it's, it's very interesting coming to New Zealand for the first time, not having an aircon in the house, and be like, what do I do at night? <laughs> How do I breathe? Is there going to be enough air in my room? It's just a hilarious thing that you don't realize different cultures until you're ex experiencing it. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So tell us a little bit about your parents. It sounds like yeah. they had quite a big influence on you. Yeah, what what sort of people were yeah. there and how did how did they shape you? Yeah, they do. I think they are definitely my role models in two different ways. So dad is, is I see him as those kind of cool, calm, collected kind of individual, right? So he he is quite open-minded and also quite forward-thinking. So what it means, I think to give you an example, I think one of the biggest things I learned from him is probably about being okay to be different just because um, while we have you know enough money to, to kind of live comfortably and all that, it was never his intention to kind of chase those fame, those money, and also simple things like he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, which somewhat, um, I believe it wasn't much of a norm in the his social circle or in the societal norm back then, which would have been, you know, challenging to, to be like, yes, I don't drink, I just wanted soft drink and all that. But I think it had a real impact on me in the fact that I think you can, you don't need to follow the societal norm, you need to, don't need to go party and that you can be yourself and, and mm. kind of in the city. So I think that gave me a lot of impact around you can be who you are without having to follow the societal norm. But mum is completely, completely different because obviously she has kind of sacrificed herself by giving up her career and look after us. So I think while she was very strict most of the time, um, for example, spending a lot of time tutoring us for exams in order she would spend three hours, four hours a day, just cram us to get to the exam and all that. But I think she is... She probably has the most biggest heart. I think she's always the one pulling us around um, to be like, let's go to the temple, let's go and donate to these charities, let's um, help these people that we see um, that are obviously not um, not having as much of a mm. yeah a living as what we do. So therefore, I think she's always the one that that gives me that humility, that gives me that sense of actually, 
it should we should be grateful to what we have mm. as there's always more people that need it more than us so mm. how can we do something like that to support them but i think to sum it up it's it's, it's a bit of a blend right so it, it gives me that a sense of being an individual a sense of discipline i think and also a sense of compassion to to other fellow human beings mm. that's really good and i guess in thailand as well just thinking of the contrast with new zealand because i also remember in thailand poverty is like in your face poverty it is. it's it's like it is. they're on the street corner everywhere yeah. you turn um what what influence do you think that had on you growing up like seeing it right there and honestly i think what breaks my heart the most when i see it is, is poverty mm. is purely it's those people who are working really hard to feed their family but they're not able to or unsuccessfully due to systematic uh, sorry systemic kind of um, inequality and all that they're unable yeah. to bring them their family up to the next step so i think that what breaks my heart the most but you're right mm. it's probably being absorbed by seeing that in real time as you walk through the street mm. also the sense of how my my mother always you know helped encourage me to be like actually we can do more for what you see mm. on the street as well which i think it shaped me a little bit and that's probably part of the reason why i think when we talk about impact later mm. that the social side seems to resonate with me a lot more than environment environmental but i'm not saying it's it's more important i think they're both interdependent to each other mm. it's really interesting to me because like when i was a child we moved when i was 12 years old and we lived in chile in south america and at the time that we were living there there were really poor people like mm. literally they'd come and knock on your door and mm. ask for bread yeah. you know like it's it's not something that you get as much in a western yeah. i mean there's definitely poverty here i'm not yeah. trying to say there isn't but it, it's like a different scale, yeah. you know, like people living outside yeah. under bridges yeah. and like everywhere. It's, it so is. I think it does give you a, a different sense, I guess, because growing does. up I always had this, both of realizing the privilege that I had, mm -hmm. right, but also that there were people who yep. needed support. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And um, just for, in, in Thailand, is it English something that you're taught at school or like is it something that you some schools would have it or not or how does that work yeah so most schools will teach english but obviously it's more about the grammar vocabulary yeah. and all that instead of trying to be able to communicate yeah. and so on but as part of you know i guess my dad being forward thinking he knew straight away that ability to speak english was something that's going to be very important to me and my sister and hence i think um he obviously had planned for me to, to send me overseas which is where i am today but before that we were um, sent to an international school for a year or so just to make sure that um, we're able to, I guess, communicate in English. Yeah. But yes, it's, I think it does help in terms of preparing myself for the journey to come. Yeah. So education, it sounds like that was a core value of your family. Like that was a big thing for your father and your mother, right? Because she was training you three hours on exams and things. Yeah, it was. And I think it's, it's probably, I guess, it's part of a bit of an Asian mindset in terms of education to to get good money, you need to get a good job, and to get a good job, you need to get good education. Right. It seems to be a societal norm yeah, that yeah. you grew up with in an Asian society. Yeah, and if we went back to the next generation, like your grandparents, yeah. was education important to them that led to your father becoming a pharmacist? or Probably very different. I think my both my dad and my mom came from a very different background. Mm -hmm. So the, the dad came from a family of 12. So they, they were kind of farmers in terms of that. So I think 
their focus weren't really education, but it was obviously to feed the family and to give the most opportunities, I guess, at that time to most of the boys in the family because right. that's where the transition used to be in mm-hmm. terms of he was half Chinese origin and then that makes it, I guess, even more male bias in terms of the family. Right. Um, so therefore, obviously, most of the boys in the family get a little bit more education as opposed to mm. the female yeah. um, within the family. Yeah. And, and mom, I think she... I probably didn't know much about her apart from she was also an accountant, so therefore <laughs> I'm not saying that it has any influence on me being one, but yep. I think obviously <laughs> they're both um, educated and yeah. went to university, which obviously was also not, I guess, a, a norm at that time yeah. as well. So we were privileged. Yeah, and I always I like to hear these stories because, you know, your father growing up as one of 12 yeah. in a farming environment, maybe for him education was a way to make that jump into owning a business or you yeah. know doing things differently so yeah. yeah it's like a key that can unlock yeah. the doors right definitely yeah. and um how did you end up in new zealand like was that the place that you were sent first or did you go to another yeah i mean the real story is as i said before i think he sees ability to speak english as one of the key skills that i should have yeah um one day i just got a ticket and i turned up so he literally just um came with me on the flight um, dropped me off. As I remember, the first flight I came here, that was 2002. Okay. Um, Harry Potter, the first one, was on, on the plane. That was, um, it was that long ago. Wow. And yep. yeah, he, he came with me, um, stayed with me for a week, and he just left. And here's my new home. So it was a very unreal experience. But I guess being young, you didn't realize how crazy that would have sound and, and even looking back how crazy of a decision that was for my parents right to make that and be like i'm just going to drop my 12 year old son in right a, well that was my next question is how old were you uh, so 12 years old 12 years old <laughs> <laughs> wow that's amazing so you uh, why new zealand do you remember i like, didn't as a 12 year old <laughs> the only thing i was aware of then was that new zealand speak english yes and new zealand seemed to be the safer place let's say in comparison to other cities, as in Australia, no offense, um, as in Australia and all that. So I think that decision yeah. was revolved around what's a safe place okay. for their children to be, and it ended up being New Zealand. But obviously, I think with, it, it's probably cost a little bit less to be in New Zealand as opposed to London or yeah. um, New York or a big whatever big as well. So city, I think yeah. it, it just makes sense at that time. Yeah. 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 Well, that is, yeah, that, I mean, I have children, as you know, so sending my 12 year old uh, to live. On another part of the ca- where you the don't world. speak the language, where yeah. you know, the culture is, is must yeah. have been heartbroken for them. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever talked to them about that? Like, what, I, what did they just see that you had ambition to learn English and you wanted to do it? So they were like, "Yep." Go we for it. we did have like conversations about it. I think being Asian, you don't really open up as much or yeah. talk deep about your feelings, and it, and it's fine. I get it. I, I know that you know how much love they have for me yeah um but obviously i was aware that things like you know it was probably one of the hardest decisions they do they probably regretted some of it in terms of having to leave their kids there by um by themselves in a place where you don't know what's happening yeah. but obviously i felt like you know being young at that time it made it easier to fit in so therefore i probably sure. felt had it a lot easier yeah. than what my parents had and that was at a time where you know we didn't have internet back then, right? It was just kind of like I tear up every time I get a letter from my mum two months later um, yep. and things like that. And you would be buying a phone card to try to call them and yep. then you run out of money in the middle of the call. So 
it was those kind of memories where it was a different era. Huh? It was a very different era. <laughs> it wasn't like nowadays the instant we, video messaging. Exactly. And, nowadays, yeah. mum would be like, "I can't solve this tech. Can you give me a call now?" So yeah. it's very different. Yeah, yeah. And so your sister came as well. My sister actually didn't. She came later on, and I think again being. Um, with the Asian mindset, the girls tend to stay yeah. a little bit with the family just for the safety's sake, and that was kind of decision mm. um, at that time what to send me first, and then she came later. Yeah. So, do you remember, like, twelve years old? I have pretty good memories of when I was twelve. So, what was it like for you? You know, new, cold country, <laughs> different place. Do you yeah. remember that feeling of being in yeah. a new city? Yeah, I think that. A couple of lucky things happened when I came. So I actually came with another friend who was a childhood friend. So it's like family friend. We decided together that we're going to send both of our kids to the same city. So that I think definitely helped a lot because you at the release landed in some place you know someone, right. which you can get along with. So the first memory I first remember was when I landed. I was like, I can't wait to go and play tennis with my, um, you know, childhood friend just because we've been getting lessons separately, but we're sure. like, let's, let's see how we go together. So that was my first memory. But, but the other thing that I felt like I was really lucky with was um, obviously being high school, I get, I would actually stay with a homestay family, so a Kiwi homestay. Okay. In there, I think I was just so fortunate that I found probably the most loving, caring Kiwi family ever. So we, they are a family of three kids and they're between my age at that time. So it almost felt like I blended into uh -huh. their activities. They obviously invited me, invited me to everything that they do and it, make, it makes it easier, mm. I think. And I ended up staying there throughout my high school and a few years in uni. So that's about nine years wow. staying with that family and I still keep in touch with them. Yeah every few months just yeah. because they yeah, so they it became like it became more than just sort of a, a homestay you know it was actually a relationship it was like family and, yeah. to me it's like i call them my kiwi kiwi parents and obviously yeah. i have my um, my thai parents who yeah lived yeah. yeah that's amazing and back to those first times like yeah. the culture is obviously quite different yeah language is quite different yeah what was that like adapting and honestly i think when you were young, you don't notice those kind of things. You just be like, oh, what other exciting things can you do? Can I go play sports? And, and to me at that time, I think there was really three things that was on my mind. So education, as we talked about before, mm. it was just about getting good grades to please the parents. That's fine. Um, I do that. Golf was a bit of a big thing for me. I, I started playing golf when I was eight and that got carried over to here. And I think that gave me the sense of belonging quite easily because then you'd be like, oh, there's lucky my school. Um, I went to Burnside High and they had golf as, as one of the, the sports. So therefore I just fit straight in. And, you know, that means I have a social life that I can go and have a common kind of yeah. um, interest on that. So that was helpful. But equally, um, it makes it a lot easier, I think, to fit in having common interests mm -hmm. on there. And most of the time, I feel like I ended up having friends who are more not from thailand for some reason but mostly they're from um, chinese origin as in like taiwanese malaysian and all that so therefore again probably finding a comfort zone as in um someone who looks similar to me more like me as opposed to going to um you know to hang out with a full kiwi and all that so i think i kind of realized after it's probably my way of safeguarding myself and then making myself comfortable right you just kind of blend into the people who kind of look like you and all that so mm. i didn't know that at that time yeah yeah no that's interesting and at some point did you think i want to stay here or i want to stay in the western 
society and culture instead of going back to Thailand? Yeah. Or, yeah, what was the timing on that? Yeah. It's quite a big decision for your parents to send you here, presumably to get an education. Yeah. So that maybe you could go back and yeah. and live there. Yeah. Or, yeah. How did that work? Yeah. I think their decisions were long term in terms of they want me to obviously um, graduate from high school, graduate from uni, and then see what happens. I think probably after the first few weeks, I'm like, oh, yeah, this place is pretty good. So from my point of view, I think it was indifferent to me. It, it, it kind of, I kind of adapted quite quickly into the, yep. um, the life in Christchurch. And therefore, I think I probably haven't had my conscious thought about why I was here at that time, which, yeah, is probably the way I got raised in terms of, obviously, parents tend to be the one who kind of dictates what you do mm. at that time. So it's still limiting belief a little bit that I didn't realize until quite a bit later in my life that actually some of those has been either holding me back or kind of building the foundation for me mm. to step up further. But short answer is I probably haven't thought of it very much. It was just like, oh, yeah, another day at school, another day at right. the golf course. Yeah. Happy and, days. And you're enjoying it and it, you've got a circle of friends. And yeah, so I, I found... And you came young enough where your English was able to improve and, yeah. and you know, be able yeah. to interact yeah. without any issues. Yeah, so I found my comfort circle. I think that's what it was, which make it yeah. almost difficult to leave at the same time. It'd be like, yeah. oh, it's so, so comfortable here. Why yeah. should I try something else? Yeah, no, that's good. Well, we're going to get on in a few minutes to where you did go because you yeah. did leave. <laughs> um, but before we do that, like, you ended up yeah, tell us a bit about the journey finishing high school and starting university. Did you know what you wanted to study? Um, yeah, you've you've kind of ended up in this accounting side mm. and impact side. Yeah, but yeah. How did that? Come and it's about? almost like you already knew the story. Um, I ended up being in accounting, but um, throughout my high school, I actually was studying all sciences. So I was the the goal was I was going to go and do med because that's what all Asian parents say. You need to be a doctor, right? And therefore, that was what I was being ambitious to do. So I never actually studied accounting ah. until that final year in terms of year 13, you have to make a decision, right? In terms of do you go down to Dunedin to study um, health science or do you stay up and do whatever else there is? I think at that time, the two things were really is that I attempted to do UMAT and I did not get the good enough score that I would be mm -hmm. to get into medicine. So that's one thing that I feel like, okay, maybe this is not for me, but equally, I think, coming in as an international student at that time to pay to go to the medicine school would have been 70 grand a year mm. easy, which is not feasible in terms of where we were mm. then. And it was just not fair for my parents either. So I think I yeah. made a decision not to follow that path. Mm. But equally, I think I didn't make decision on what else I should be doing. Right. So there was just like, why don't you just do accounting? It'll be good. So I just said, yes, let's do it. Uh -huh. And it just by chance that it ended up being that way. Yeah, <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, but I guess you had the legacy because your mother had done accounting, right? So you knew a someone bit. who. Yeah. yeah, but again, I think it's more about he dad sees accounting as a foundation for all the businesses. So mm. therefore, at the very least, I can find out what I like doing later, as long as you understand how fundamentally businesses work. Yeah, that makes sense. And you decided to stay in Canterbury again because of the comfort. Yeah. circle I think I at that time that my mindset was probably very different I think it was just like whatever is comfortable whatever mm -hmm. is with my my safety net and yeah. and that kind of means I don't have to take accountability too much yeah. on what could go wrong and that was used to be my mindset for a long time 
And just thinking about the timing, you said um, you were 12 when you got here in 2002, so there was a significant significant event in Canterbury <laughs> yes. coming up, the yeah. earthquakes. Yeah. So were you still at university at that point? I graduated before that okay. um, big earthquake happened. I happened to be in China at that time. So I was after I graduated in at the end of 2009, I went on an OE to, to Guangzhou in China for three months to study Chinese. That was part of what I, I studied at uni as well uh-huh. on there. So I just happened to be away for that time, which was fortunate for me, but obviously horrific um, event for yeah. many so, people. Down. So had you um, jumped years or something? Because that's pretty young to be graduating. <laughs> was it 2009? I mean, you f- you I, I started year nine in... Um, when I was 12 straight away. So I probably skipped that first year yeah, and yeah. just jumped straight in. So I think that's where yeah. it is. Yeah. I thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like you were quite young, though, to be graduating sure. from yeah. university and yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's something to think about. Because <laughs> I'm just thinking, for me, I, yeah. I finished high school. Yeah. I was like 17, turned yeah. 18. Mm-hmm. And then I went to university at Canterbury yeah. as well. So I didn't graduate till I was like 22, 23, yeah. you know, like I did yeah. a five-year course. So yeah. yeah, no, fair enough. Yeah, oh, interesting. And then, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about accounting and doing that. But then I'm really curious about your decision to leave because yeah. we've heard about staying in the comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then what provoked the desire to actually push yourself to, yeah. to move overseas? Yeah. yeah, so I ended up... Um, after graduate, after my OE in China, I came back and I was fortunate to land myself a job in an, in, as an internal accountant first in an engineering firm before I finished my CA um, with, um, I call it the big five, so the, the global accounting firm based in Christchurch here. So I worked with them for seven years in their business advisory team. So that's mainly, mainly spend my time in the system team and, and supporting SMEs on their um, both financial and management kind of reporting and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, yeah, with everything, as I said before, about the mindset, about the comfort level, I just, there was um, a couple of things that happened that made me realize that actually having these limiting beliefs, having, being in my comfort zone, not taking accountability for my life, it's, it's not, no longer serve the purpose of what I wanted to become. So that was kind of almost a turning point, which was around, 2016, 2017. So, I mean, you know, job was great. Um, I was climbing the ladder as fast as I could, um, made enough good money to live comfortably for the rest of my life, but I wasn't happy, but I wasn't unhappy. It was just mm. another day at work. So I, once I realized that, I think I spent a lot of time investing myself to try to be like, actually, um, what what mindset would help me to get to the next stage. And I think um, by doing that, I ended up running across some of the wonderful people that are based in Christchurch here. And I think they were the one showing me, you know, you probably heard of the saying, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And I really couldn't be who I am now without them shining mm. some parts for me to say that, hey, say if you could use that finance skill to support and create more impact that mm-hmm. wasn't in my book. I would never taught that. Sure. You can, there's a way that you don't have to be a partner. You can be something else as an accountant. So therefore, some, um, a couple of people like that has really, yeah. I think, inspired me to do something different. And that's where the mindset has really shifted. And I think it, it really helped me articulate the, the three principles in my life now that mm. I really follow mm. to, 
to continue that path. Well, I'm really curious about that, so I want to find out about the three principles. <laughs> But um, before we talk about mm. that, uh, that that's interesting to me that you at some point realized that you wouldn't become your full potential unless you pushed yourself or you did something different. Because I think a lot of people, even people listening right now, are at that point of having a realization and actually I need to push myself or I need to do something, that scary thing, you know, like some people say push the boat out into yeah. the deeper water, yeah. like I'm going somewhere I've never been before. Yeah. Do you remember, like was it a moment when you thought I got to do something or did, was it more of a gradual like yeah. seeping in and then you realized that you had changed Yeah. even though it felt like it was quick, it had been months or years? Yeah, I, yeah, I felt like My previous self, I was never really ambitious, and that's why you know I stayed in crisis for so long because mm -hmm. it's, it's so comfortable and everything was working. But I felt like there was one point in my life that I I kind of hit rock bottom, right. like as an individual, as a, a mental thing that I just couldn't be who I was anymore. And I think that's what that breaking point was the one to be like, it's it's time to switch. It's I can't do the same thing I did yesterday because it will. Not change, and I feel like you know I believe that the change happened on an instant, and that's where the instant was that I decided for myself to take accountability for who I want to become. But mm. again, even that you know by switching it on, it's really difficult to find what path look what the path looks like, just because if you've never seen it done, where do you know yeah. how to say? So not everyone have the courage and the confidence to to start something new, and that's where you know wonderful people like yourself like. You know, Michelle and Tim that we mentioned before had really opened my eyes into yeah. different possibilities. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, I want to hear what it was that about them that helped you. Mm. But I love the way that you phrased that—that that, you know, you're becoming your full potential. I think, or you know, yeah. becoming. I I always said it this way, and this is something that I remember when I was quite young. Yeah. Well, you know, twenty one, twenty two. I was living in Japan at the time, yeah. and I had this thing where I said to myself, "How can I become?" The type of person yeah. that I would like to meet, mm -hmm. and to me that was like a guiding principle That's that cool. has helped me to make decisions. Yeah. Because if you look at people, yeah. like if you're in a room, crowded room, there's a whole bunch yeah. of people there. Which are the ones that you would like to meet? And then what is it that's unique about them that you could learn from, or that you could? And basically, in my opinion, it boils down to curiosity yep. <laughs> and people wanting to know more. And yeah. oh, how does that work? Oh, I want to go there. Oh, I want to try that. You know, like that curious mindset yeah. is really, really critical. Definitely. But I found that has helped shape a lot of I who like I've it. become, which is yeah. I want to become like Stephen today is not who Stephen will be five years from now or ten yeah. years from now. I so like how it. can I become that type of person that I would like to meet? So love yeah. it, yeah, love it's, it. It's helped me. So mm. these people who influence you, let's just give them a little shout out because they're amazing. <laughs> so um, they happen; those two happen to be guests number one and two of Seeds Podcast. Somehow, so it's just that's awesome. Coincidentally, <laughs> that they were the first two episodes I listened to. Yeah, and somehow, you know, even with Tim Jones, he was the one that randomly reached out to me on LinkedIn and be like, "Say, do you want to do you want to come and have a look at what Kumanok does?" And that's really opened my eyes to the term social enterprise. And as you know it, yeah. um, it's it's really like wow, I can actually 
run the business while having a purpose at the same time. And obviously at that time, I think Michelle was a CEO yeah. of Q1. And that's where the, the connections started to piece together. I ended up running without knowing who Michelle was. I ran into her at your impact lunch, mm-hmm. sat next to her. And we're just like, hi, my name is Saif. And she's like, I'm Michelle. I'm like, Michelle Sharp, episode one from Seeds. <laughs> and then that's, that's, that's kind of the first conversation and oh, the first connection cool. that I had. And what's just the most fascinating thing ever happened was she was like, Saif, I like what you're doing. Do you want to come and work for me? She offered me a role at that time, but that yeah. was just before I went to the UK. So I, sure. I respectfully declined it, but it was just like there was someone who believed in what my passion is, who believed in what I do, even though she didn't know me at that time. She was like, I like what you're about. Do you want to come work with me? And I think that that almost empowered me to be like, actually. You can yeah. have the confidence, right? Definitely. Yeah. I was like, yeah. I know um, when I interviewed her, I remember she said she's an excellent judge of character. I think she could meet someone and 10 seconds later, she would be potentially saying, yep, I, I think you're the right person to hire. You know, like, um, so it's a great endorsement that she said that to you. I hope so. Um, but I, I've always looked up to her and her very positive attitude Definitely. as well and how she approaches yeah. things. What else has stood out? Let, let's give them shout outs. For Tim and Michelle, what have you appreciated about them? I like that Tim proactively reached out to you. I just couldn't believe just a random guy to be like, hey, let's just come into here. But I think for him, it's, it's all about, you know, how do I find my own purpose, right? So he's been almost like my purpose guy in terms of what are my limiting beliefs? How do you break away from that? And mm. how can you, you know, ikigai is the concept that he obviously mentioned a lot, but yeah. I now understand after many years of like, what is he talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so he and Michelle are definitely one of the top two people that mm. has really influenced my life and shaped my principles. You know, the principles that I really have now are basically just, um, um, a life of service. So that means that I just, I'm just here to serve. I just want to help you. Mm-hmm. And and honestly, I think what I love the most about it is is helping good people because I think helping good people, they just do more good. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's as simple as that. Um, the second one was obviously putting people first. And I, I see this from, from, I think, Michelle's point of view has really strong influence in me on that because she had always put people above and beyond everything she does and it means that it's about relationship more than just the transactional one Mm -hmm. and i believe that you know you don't see this kind of leadership in many of our leaders today and it's really embedded into me that the leader i want to be is Mm -hmm. who she really is right now and lastly i think you touched on it before it's about having the growth mindset having the abundance mindset as well that you know there's enough for everyone to share it's all about collaboration mm. is all about partnership. We don't need to find, I think we can all do good together. Yeah. So really those were my three principles that it's all been, you know, integrated with all these kind of leaders that I met along the way. Yeah, that's great. So service, people, and growth mindset. And growth or, mindset. Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah. So that's become like a bedrock or foundation is, that you then make decisions. Definitely, so everything I do now be like, does it take all these boxes? Does it help people? Um, does it ha- make me learn or, you know, mm. does it make someone someone else stay better? Plus, if not, then mm. why am I spending my energy to do that? Mm. That's great. Yeah. And that time of, you know, you're, you're realizing you need to get out of that comfort yeah. zone. Like we've talked about yeah. that. You're here in Christchurch. You're stable. Yeah. You have a good job. Yeah. At what point did you think, I need to push? And, and then how did you decide where to go? Because I'm really ki- keen to get yeah, into that yeah, yeah. and what you learned as yeah. well. 
Yeah, obviously, um, with all those influences from um, you know those people before, but equally, you know, you you kind of have this epiphany moment that you know what am I doing with my life? Am I am help making these rich people get richer in a way which didn't yeah. serve me in any way or form? So therefore, that that was also part of the reason why I feel like I needed to go somewhere. Um, coincidentally, I think a couple of things happened. So number one, we were kind of in the process of applying for my um, parents' visa to immigrate to here, but uh-huh. due to the change of the law, we were not qualified, so therefore it freed me up to be like, actually, I don't have to be here, I can I go see. somewhere else, which ended up also, because I was almost turning 30 at that time, mm-hmm. if I don't do it then, the working holiday visa is never gonna um, give me the opportunity anymore. So it was like all these things, three things that aligned together and be like, I need to go. And therefore, I just ended up, I was wanting to go to the Netherlands, but ended up, I think, it would be very challenging to find a job in there purely because I don't speak Dutch. Sure. And yeah, yeah probably their, their way of working would be very different. So London was just an easy option, I think, for me. And I was just fortunate that I have a couple of friends who already lived there, which really helped settle yeah. me in at that time. Yeah, that's great. And tell me a little bit about what you were doing there, because yeah. that's where I want to head with the conversation is like, of course. what were you learning and what are the things that you're bringing back? But yeah, yeah, what were some of the things you were involved in? Yeah, and again, leading by my principles, right? we talk about helping people and, and learning. I think I was, I made a conscious decision to go to London purely to jump straight into the social sector of it, because I know that social enterprise, as I already discovered that not many years ago, is, is going to be the driving force in terms of how can I scale my um, finance um, skills into impact. Mm-hmm. And therefore, the, the first role that I was doing was with a social enterprise that support refugees into employment. So again, I think what I really get to expose was the diversity of the people I work with, the, the passion that they have to support such a good cause because many of them came through the company in order to secure the role, in order to have, you know, improve their f- well-being for them and the family mm. through there. So you see the real impact in the front line, which I think was really meaningful for me. And you also see the power of finance, power of accounting to actually drive some of these things. But I mean, going back to a couple of course that I remember really well, I think Michelle mentioned, you know, it shouldn't be this hard to do good was one of the quotes that she probably put in, in one of the episodes. But I think you start seeing the real thing that running a social enterprise is really hard and to, to just make uh, make it break even, let alone having another lens of impact on top, is not an easy thing to do. So I think that taught me firsthand that the power of accounting and the power of impact can go together before I jump into the second role, which was, I think, um, again, because I've just been reaching out to lots of random people. I think I was a, such a workaholic back then. I just literally just reacted to be like, hey, this is what I do. Can I help you with doing this, this, and that? So I've been volunteering a lot um, outside of work, but it ended up landing me in a role at my final um, last employee employer of um, working with a 20-year-old social investor based in London. So what we did was we provide grant and, fi- and finance to support um, social enterprises, charities, and local authorities in the UK to tackle inequality. So again, impact investing was new to me, um, but that exacerbated the fact that my finance skill can 
not just support one entity or one organization, it actually can support hundreds of them, which I think that's where my sweet spot is, is that how do I amplify my impact? And I think impact investing was one of the ways I feel like it's probably the most relevant that I can do to, to embed that social impact alongside the finance yeah. as well. That's really good because I think the first one gave you the the practical reality definitely like what you're doing and helping these yeah. people and things and then the second one it sounds like it was like the the how do we invest into yeah. these and how do we make sure that there's actually impact yeah. and some of the terms that get thrown around as well right is yeah. social washing green washing like mm. how do we ensure that this is actually going to yeah. have the impact that we want to yeah. have so i'd love to find out more about all of this <laughs> um when you talk about impact investing for some people listening this will be a new concept yeah um i've know quite a lot about it but mm. can you explain from your perspective and, yeah and i'm keen as well to hear this sort of the uk perspective you yeah. were there a couple of years yeah what are people talking about or what what does it mean when people yeah. use the term impact yeah. investing yeah so impact investing to me it simply means that it's the investment with the intention to create a positive measurable social and environmental impact so simply it's about investment that has the return the risk and impact as part of the core DNA of of investment. I think from it's interesting just because working in this working with the social investor over there, I don't think we kind of branded as impact investing, but it ended up become one just because um, of the the mainstreaming of of the term and all that over the recent years. But I think we were we've been doing that for the past twenty years. It was more about how can we ensure that. Um, the money is, is is going to support a community and all that, which, mm. you know, even thinking back to here in New Zealand, a lot of many foundations, especially indigenous ones, might already be doing that just without the term yeah. impact investing. But thinking about the market in the UK is, is a completely different beast, right, in terms of how advanced they are in their, not just the social mindset, but also the, the investing side of things. They had what they call big society capital, which is a wholesale of impact investing over there. So they regulate where the money should be going to which social investor, which I think makes it a lot easier to to amplify the impact and, and ensuring that someone like our foundation always have resources to amplify our impact more, which obviously is in New Zealand, I think, is very limited to a certain set of foundations or mm. investment where you're focusing on a maybe geographic areas or types of investment like social housing yeah. and all that. So completely different bees in terms of that. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because I get still people are confused about what we're talking about when you say impact investing. But I, I view it as actually fairly simple to explain. Like if you have money and it's in a bank and it's on a term deposit, say, you know, like nine months, two years, whatever, you're making an interest rate. That is investing, right? That's traditionally people would say, yeah, yeah. it's all about the financial return. Yeah. And impact investing is just saying, where can you get financial return, mm -hmm. but also have impact in another way? Yeah. And once you explain it like that, I think people start to understand like, yeah. okay, and particularly for big funds, and I'm keen to hear your perspective on this, like yeah. some, some groups have literally tens of millions of dollars that mm -hmm. they have parked in long-term bonds or term deposits or, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's making a nominal amount of interest yep. and it's returning money that then they're using to give out. But 
the actual act of investing is not having a positive impact. Whereas impact investing is saying, hey, take that $10 million, invest it over here, and help a business get off the ground or help this group to achieve their impact yep. and get a financial return. Yep. Like, that's the real, that's it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I mean, a couple of concepts, I suppose, that I really learn within the impact ecosystem, impact investing ecosystem anyway, are things like the word double materiality. I don't know if you heard of that, but it yeah. means that most of us as business or as a board of directors are focusing on what external factors are influencing our business. But double materiality means that it's taking a step further by also thinking as a business, how does that impact the external societal and environmental aspect of our world? So I think that's, that's you know, going back to your point, it's about not just considering the social ret- uh, the investment return, but also how does our investment impact mm. the wider people and the planet as well. But equally, there was a, a thing called an ABC of impact, which I think has been used quite a bit over there to classify what your yeah, investors are doing. I'm keen to understand that. So talk us through, what is the ABC yeah, of impact? So the, the A simply stands for avoiding harm. So if you think about the ESG funds where it's negative screening, right? So divesting away from oil and gas, that would be avoiding harm. The B is about benefiting stakeholders, which means it's, it's the opposite. It's the positive screening. It's responsible investing, which are, let's say, um, we're investing in a B Corp because they already meet some form of sustainability standards in there. And the C, which is where impact investing is really playing at, is, is stand for contribu- contributing to solutions. And it's things like social housing and it's things that we invest in order to get both the, the return on investment and also the impact mm. as well. And I, I kind of like that a lot because I simplify the fact that, you know, what actually, what activities are you doing? Are you actually just trying to be better? Are you working with the people who are already doing good? Or are you actually the pioneer to, to drive that social impact, which is where impact investing should be playing at? Yeah, and I, I like those sorts of ways to visualize or think about things. Yeah. Because the other one you mentioned was double materiality. Yeah. And I like that as well as a filter yeah. to think about it because it's very common in a business, say, to think about how is this external factor going to affect yeah. us? Yeah. But it's another level to say, how are we impacting on yeah. that issue or that thing, right? Yeah. Like that's the the double side. Yeah, and visually, it's just an arrow going one way, but there's also an arrow going the other way of, of how does our business mm. impact other things as well. Yeah, and I know the XRBs recently, so external reporting board, yep. they've introduced some requirements, which is basically for the top 100 yep. companies in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting thing because it's mainly looking at the impact of the climate change or climate things on the company. So that's one level of materiality, like what is the impact of climate change on us? But then it's the next level, which is gets really interesting. What is the impact of us on the climate? Like that's then that's going that next level. Yeah. Layers. But I believe it's already here, right? You start seeing that shift in terms of the requirement to produce the, um, st- statement of service performance, for example, which requires charity to disclose the impact that they have within the community, within the activities and all yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. so you are seeing that shift in the non-financial reporting yeah. already. And and what it means, I think it's, it's linking to a couple of things, right? That we start seeing the importance of the interdependencies of the people and the planet. Mm-hmm. And also, I think coming back... Um, Four months ago, fresh in New Zealand, I think what I see prominently now is the, the embrace, embracing of the tail Māori principle, which 
also talks about things beyond financial measures, right? It's, it's also the people and the environment that they focus on. It's both the living and non-living things. So therefore, mm. I see them as strong influence in driving us towards that impact or the non-financial reporting. Yeah, yeah. And so instead of an accountant or somebody looking at the numbers and saying, "Well, here's the report. This is the number that you put in your report," it's saying, "Here's a picture of a child that we helped." And this is their story, right? Like it's it's making it more personal. It is, and I mean, this the thing that I never forget is is every data that we talk about is there how human lies behind it, and mm. we as accountant particularly tend to forget that is is human data behind that. Yeah, and how do we how do we get to a point? Because accounting it's necessarily looking at numbers, like hard, yes. cold facts, yeah. numbers, like this was the investment and this was the interest rate, mm-hmm. therefore we made this amount of money. Yeah. But how do we get to the point where we look at it and say, okay, we did an impact investment, we put a million dollars into this whatever it is, and as a result, 17 children got education outcomes. Yeah. Like, it's just hard to measure though, isn't it? Like Definitely. The, the, um, the monetary yeah. impact. But I know, like I'm involved with community housing quite a yep. lot with community finance and we know that by building a clean green efficient home where a child is living yeah it's going to have positive impact of on course. their life journey yep. but it's really hard to say this number you know like this will be the impact yeah x amount of dollars yeah um yeah it's like how do we get to the point yeah. where we recognize the impact in a yep. way that people go why wouldn't we invest in this because mm we're helping a hundred families yeah. into homes. Yeah, so I mean, two things came to mind. Number one, I think once people know that, hey, I do impact consulting, most of the people generally ask, oh, how do you measure social impact or what tools do I use to measure social impact? Personally, I don't think it's the first, the right first question to ask because I believe that actually what's more important is what's your impact and what's the most material impact. Mm. Um, that you have on the people you're trying to serve. Because without knowing that, all this measurement, I think it means nothing. Mm. What measuring A, B, and C, how does that lead into the impact you're generating? So, and, and going back to the other point was, uh, most of us, I think also an accountant is a main culprit for that, focusing on the, the numbers. It's like, oh, what number are we getting? What is the final outcome? And I think we neglected the more important thing, which is how can we use some of these data to make decisions or what is the progress into that? Uh, the favorite phrase that I've been hearing a lot is, is called enough precision for decision, right. which means that you don't need a, you know, a randomized control trial to be like, this is the exact impact that you're getting, but it's about has by providing this different service to the, this different subgroup, does it actually make a positive or negative impact mm. to them is that intended or unintended and i feel like these kind of conversations of different dimensions of impact is 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 not fully aware in terms of what we do and that that leads into i think exacerbating the like of inequality just because we are going to be focusing on the average data which means that most of the marginalized group are not being heard yeah it's really fascinating so <laughs> impact consulting that's kind of where you've landed. Yes. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that and what we can do in the show notes. We can put a link and, you know, how to contact you and stuff. But, yeah, what does that involve and what yeah. are you hoping to do with this yeah. now that you're back in so New as, Zealand? As hinted before, I think 
many organizations find it really challenging to navigate this complexity of you know social impact and social impact frameworks that's around it. Yeah, this means that they find it they don't know what to do next, and also um, how to embed some of these impact into their strategy and decision making. Right? Um, without the data without these guidance, it means that they don't have access to the insights to make better decisions, which leads into, um, which leads into um, not being able to make decisions to improve the way that they do things. So I think what, what we do here, so I, I founded an organization called the Third Line Impact Consulting. So what we do is our mission is to really build impact capacity, strengthen community, and also amplify marginalized voices, and we do that through um, supporting organizations to design a bespoke impact management framework so that they can make better decisions and also um, optimize resource for impact. And what this really means is that it allows them to start shifting the conversations from output to outcome, start asking different questions instead of just focusing on the positive intended impact, what about the negative unintended impact? or our contribution, what does that mean? So therefore, I think it really will help um, organizations to truly understand what their impact is and ultimately amplify those marginalized voices mm. as well. Yeah, that's great. Well, yeah, we'll put some information so that people can find out more. It's, I like what you're saying as well, though, that sometimes you do something and then there's a consequence. And if you'd thought a little bit further, you know, you might have realized by doing this, it's going to lead to this other thing that's actually a negative consequence, which then is worse than the thing that we're trying to solve. Yeah. And, and you don't know because you didn't think it through. Yeah, and I mean, the good news is that I think we're all on a journey. No one's really at the beginning or at the end of your impact journey. Yeah. And it, it's just about we all know that it's important to understand what our impact is, but most of us, because of the lack of definition, the lack of standards and frameworks, most of us, do that implicitly anyway, and what does that mean for the people at the end who cannot? It's not like financial accounting where we have the auditors to support the shareholders when we are not performing. What about these beneficiaries that we're trying to support? There's no one who's standing up for them, and that's, that's still, you know, as part of the progress in, in the growing of the impact community, is that what does that mean in the impact assurance and all that? So yeah, it's, which it's comes important. back to your people principle, right? Definitely. <laughs> so it's, it's all about involving stakeholders and putting them at the center and of everything that we do in order to inform us on what is the most relevant and valued for them. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I recently talked with Carl Davidson. Um, so he's just a gushing flow of content and information. Yeah. But he was telling me about a story um, where unintended consequences, you know. Yeah. So we were talking about the Panama Canal yeah. because it, it, my um, ancestors went to Panama to help build it. Yeah. And the French were there um, and they were building it and they noticed that people were getting sick, but what they thought it was like the ants and things. So they put little cups of water and yep. then the bedposts were sitting in the cups of water so yep. that the ants couldn't get in to bite people. What they didn't realize is that the water is where the mosquitoes yep. were laying and then they had mm. the mosquitoes and that yep. was actually the thing that was killing people because they were the spreaders of it. Mm. So it's just an interesting example of, um, you know, you do one thing trying to solve something and it introduces an even worse problem than you were that's right. <laughs> aware of at the start. Yeah, and I mean, I keep using the term, you know, involving stakeholders, but I think that's something where I was really conscious when I was in the UK was the, the concept of power dynamics. Mm -hmm. I mean, 
particularly me, I think I didn't realize how privileged I was. And, and also being an accountant or consultant, you tend to come up with solutions all the time without listening to people. Mm. So therefore, it was just, I guess, my, my plea in terms of it's all about understanding what works best for the people yeah. and also involving them in every decision to make better decisions, not to produce lovely, beautiful marketing reports or public um, documents for that just because otherwise then what's the point of investing in all these resources for if we're not doing something different? Yeah, that's right. And then that brings us to a slightly different topic, but the terminology that we use, like how do we describe different actors within the ecosystem? Yeah. Because if you think about the, the grant makers or the people with the money, quite often they're described in a way that is almost parental, you know, like I'm going to grant you money as as the superior with the money and the money is coming from me to you and you are the recipient. And rather than some more of a let's co-create something, you know, I happen to have the money, you have the on the ground knowledge, let's work together to be able to implement change. It's just it's really subtle, right? But it's actually important to think about like how do we talk about our organizations and yeah. what we each do. It's a massive mindset shift. I think those with money always have the power, unfortunately, and mm-hmm. it means that how do we actively relinquish some of those powers so that we truly understand yeah. what will work best for the community that we're trying to serve. Yeah, yeah. a shout-out to Kate Frickberg um, up in Wellington because I helped her with a document which was basically like a fund-holding agreement, and we were trying to change the terminology yeah. of the person with the money and the person receiving yeah. the money and make it more of a level playing field, basically. Yeah. So Yeah, and I mean, even with definitions, you know, if we don't have that, I think it's, it's exacerbated the light of inequality because if, if we have the bias in our definitions, then yeah. this systematic issues yeah. would not get resolved either. So definition is very important. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The um, the Seeds Impact Conference, we had a whole bunch of topics and yep. some of them were covering this idea of systems change as well. Mm. Like, how do you implement that? I might put in the links because um, I did those as episodes of Seeds as well. Yep. So Alex Hanant led a really good discussion yes. about systems change yeah. and what does it mean and how do we do it? And yeah, yeah it, it's fascinating. And yeah, it's been really cool to hear some of your journey as well, because the thing I take courage from in your journey is that you've admitted you were kind of leading a safe life, you know, um, literally your your name and your life. But I think it's really encouraging that at some point, partially because of the encouragement from others like Michelle and Tim and and others that you actually said, I want to do things a little bit differently, because my hope with the podcast is that people listening will realize that maybe this is more of a description yep. of their life than they realized, and they need to do things a 100%. bit differently. Because if we could get a whole cohort of people, hundreds, thousands of people, then yep. that's where you're going to have real yep. big change, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. And I think if I leave the show with one thing, I think one thing that I did really well over the past year is I used the term crowdfunding my dream. I don't know if you heard of that term before, but it means that I believe that you might have heard of the phrase things like if you ask and you get, right? And if you tell the world what you're about, then the world starts providing you with all these things that are aligned to what your values are. And I truly believe that because I think um, what that means is knowing what your values are, um, how does that serve the world and help people? I think you really can attract and, and get inspired by a lot of the people around you to, to get the most collective impact in mm. there. So I, I like to crowdfund my dream and, and a lot of beautiful people 
are, are joining me to support and believe in me to do that. That's great. Well, it's been wonderful to hear that journey. And we've gone right from five years old through to today. Um, thank you for sharing. And we'll put some links in the show notes and people can reach out if they want to have a chat because I get the feeling that you're happy to talk to people about the journey and 100%. what it's now. been like. So, yep. um, yeah, thank you so much for joining Seeds. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate it. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with Safe. For me, there was a bunch of highlights, and I really enjoyed hearing about his life and what led him to go overseas, what led him to come back, what he's doing today. It was a really cool conversation because I've known him a while, but I didn't know all of that background and insights into his decision-making. If you enjoyed this, then why not check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog? Until next time!